Hello and welcome to another edition of the Who Says No NBA Trade Podcast. Believe it or not, we are at the end of the NBA regular season. We made it. It was not clean. It was very messy, but we're here. The playoffs are right around the corner. My name is Colin Ward-Henninger. I'm an NBA writer with CBSSports.com. And joining me is a man that I haven't talked to in far too long. I went on a little, I guess you could call it a vacation. I was down visiting my parents in Los Angeles. It's kind of off the grid. Uh, this guy joining me was not off the grid. He has been embedded in everything that has gone on in the NBA, these crazy playoff races, the play-in tournament, all that stuff. Sam Quinn, CBSSports.com, NBA writer. How you doing, my man? Colin, you should hear some of the listener theories that I've been getting about our whereabouts. I've heard that we've been off chasing the Lindbergh baby. Are you playing point guard for the Lakers now? Like, what's going on, man? I got a 10-day. I got a 10-day. You got a 10-day? Well, I mean, looking at it, I don't think you could be – like, they were playing point Gasol. I think you could have – I think you could have handled the ball a little bit better than that. So, you know what? Yeah, man, it's good to hear from you again. It's been a while. It has been a while, and it's a great time to come back because uh, all this craziness with the play, you know, players are complaining, LeBron saying whoever made it needs to be fired. At the end of the day, it's good for the NBA. We're talking about regular season NBA that, basketball. By the way, let's just say LeBron saying that that guy needs to be fired. I guarantee you that there's not one guy at the NBA who's like the play-in guy. Like, I'm pretty sure that this is an idea that's been percolating for quite some time. And I guarantee you it's been focus grouped. They've done all of the research possible. Everybody has had their hand in that cookie jar. Who's the one guy that you're going to fire and just be like, this is all your fault. You have incurred LeBron's wrath. You think it's that's just not like, how this works. Like Jeff Goldblum sitting in the back of the room with a pair of dark sunglasses on, just like twiddling his thumb saying, hold on, guys. I got well, it. I like to imagine <laughs> that there's one sort of guy like at NBA HQ who is just sitting in one of those rooms with screens all around him, the circular chair, like in the Matrix, who's just conceiving all of these wild ideas. I know that's not really how it works, but like I talk about this with my parents all the time. My dad is a lawyer and he has told me on several occasions that the way that wills are handled in the movies is wrong. There's not a big dramatic reading where they announce who gets what. It's just done through lawyers. I have pleaded with my dad for years that when you die, hopefully decades down the line, I would love it if you could organize a big dramatic reading, maybe hire an actor or two just to be like, oh, who's this person? It's like, is there a second family that I don't know about? Like, I would love it if the NBA operated like that just for the theatrics of it, but it doesn't. Like, everything is focus group. This is all decided, you know, years, years in advance. I don't think there's one person that LeBron can fire over this. And it's, I mean, and at the end of the day, it's a good thing for the NBA. Like, there's no way this is a bad thing for the NBA. The seven and eight seeds traditionally get get hammered in the first round. So if we can make it well, interesting in some you way. You know how I know this is a good it. thing for the NBA? We're talking about it right now. That's all they want. <laughs> exactly. And it stops it really is that teams simple. like that are towards the bottom of the standings from tanking. We still have our fair share of tankers. Don't worry People about that. People are interested in this. <laughs> That's all the NBA needed from like, I guess the trade deadline in a normal year, like mid to late February through mid April, the NBA in a normal year is really, really boring. Unless there's like some story to follow, like Westbrook chasing a triple double for the first time or the Warriors going for 73 games. Otherwise it's just a lot of resting and a lot of tanking. We're not having that this year. So the plan is a success no matter what happens in those games. 
It's going to be weird for from a daily fantasy perspective because the last week of the season is always just this like gigantic shit show. We have no idea who's going to be playing, who's going to be sitting. But now it's like teams are going to be actually playing their real guys sometimes, but other teams aren't. It's going to be crazy, man. Well, and then that you know what I loved about the last on week? Sunday. <laughs> In a normal last few weeks of the season, you get these lineups where you've legitimately heard of like one of the five guys, and most of them just disappear into the ether after the season. But like every now and then, like a name kind of sticks around and turns into a good player. Where like, I remember the first time I saw the name Dorian Finney-Smith, I was just like, "Well, I'll never hear this name again." Hey, who's and this guy? Sure enough, like he turned out to be a legitimate NBA player. Like every now and then, you find one or two diamonds in the rough. But the cool thing about that part of the season is that nobody notices. So like, you as a DFS player or me as a gambler, there's a lot of opportunity there for like those one or two really good guys. The Rockets have a few of those guys. Of course, they've been losing a lot, but like. From a DFS standpoint, like I bet you, Kevin uh, Kenyon Martin Jr. is pretty good, right? It's amazing. Like his salary has gone up from like thirty nine hundred to like seventy four hundred over the last week, and uh, like Armani Brooks is another one. That's just like it's it just shows you like that's one of the reasons I love daily fantasies because it shows you that like with enough minutes, there are a lot of guys in this world who can produce in the NBA. Like these guys are so good at basketball. And if they get the opportunity in the minutes, they can put up numbers. Now, is it efficient? Can they do it consistently? That's probably not why they're not in the league. But they could do it on any one night. We live in a world in which Anderson Varejao can sign a rest-of-season contract with Cleveland. So I remember the first time I saw a Rockets box score and I saw A. Brooks. I was like, is that Aaron Brooks? Bring it back. Aaron Brooks played in the (laughs) NBA. Like, well, without looking this up, when do you think the last time Aaron Brooks played the NBA game was? 2017. I'm looking this up now. I think it's earlier than that. I think it's like 15. Oh, oh no, you're right. 2017. I was with right. The Timberwolves. I did uh, not remember yeah. Aaron Brooks ever playing with the Timberwolves. Dean Wade is another one like this. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Like, Stug. you've got to change your first name, man. You Stug. can't be D Wade. I'm sorry. You Dean just, Wade. Man, like, <laughs> you just, I think it's unfair to basketball fans where, like, I guarantee you there are casuals who are looking in that box score and being like, wait a second, Dwayne Wade? I know he signed with the Cavs when LeBron was there. I just I thought he left, he but I guess back? not. D. Wade? Well, He's still on the Cavs? There are fans who just look at box scores and don't actually watch game. So I'm sure that like one or two people have seen that and been like, oh, wow, Dwayne Wade came back for the Cavs. I don't know why he's <laughs> playing for the Cavs, but... You know, whatever. Good for him, man. I guess he playing time. He, he likes what's going on there with, with Sexland. They got a lot going for him. Anyway, I the have, Cavs are, are not in the play-in tournament. They have been eliminated from the playoffs. But uh, the playoffs are just around the corner. And in addition to being like, you know, the culmination of the NBA season, where really the regular season doesn't mean anything once the playoffs start because it's all about winning championships. Uh, but there are a lot of other implications. And the stuff that we're going to talk about today are the financial implications, right? We see a lot of guys over the course of the years where they head into the playoffs uh, with kind of projected as one type of value. And then a great playoff run can turn them into an entirely different player. I mean, we saw this recently with Jeremy Grant and his run with the Nuggets, getting a ton of money from the Pistons and now doing what he's doing. So today we're going to talk about some uh, other players who we think could kind of, you know, ascend in value based on a, a good playoff performance if they're able to do that. Yeah, so we have five groups here of just, you know, some bigger than others of guys that like are in the same category that we think could get this sort of financial bump. And why don't we start with the Jeremy Grant-esque group, which is guys who are in a small, not even not necessarily a smaller role right now, 
but like a non-premier role who maybe if they're good enough in the playoffs like Grant was last year, they could maybe, you know, jump up the pecking order a little bit with a worse team. I have two guys in this group. One of them is on Jeremy Grant's former team. That's Will Barton, who has a $14.9 million player option this offseason. He's injured right now, but the hope is that he'll be back for the playoffs. And if he is, you know, the Nuggets have so many injuries in the backcourt. Jamal Murray obviously out for the year with the torn ACL. If he can really turn into a third scorer for Denver, would it be so crazy if, like, some lower-tier team signed him for, like, I don't know, three years, 15, 16, 17 million a year? I don't think so. Well, it's funny. You talk about the NBA. I mean, we always talk about it as a copycat league, right? And I I wouldn't be surprised if there are front offices out there who are kind of scouring for this type of player. I mean, of course, they're scouring for him, but would be willing to kind of take more of a chance after seeing – what a guy like Grant has done. Now, Barton's a little bit older, so that probably will be working against him a little bit. But yeah, I think, especially if, if he can play well and the Nuggets can can kind of exceed expectations now that Murray's out, which is definitely possible uh, given Jokic and given how well Michael Porter Jr. has been playing. Um, so yeah, like you said, if he's kind of that third guy um, and kind of elevates his game, I, I think that could definitely help him heading into, uh, into the offseason. He's in sort of a weird situation because the Nuggets tend to re-sign their own guys and frankly overpay them, but they're not really in a situation where they can afford to have Will Barton as like a $16 million fifth option, right? Because Jokic is at the max, Murray's at the max. Gordon, they hope to extend him this offseason. We'll see if they can. They want Gordon to be there long-term at something like 20 plus million a year. And then Michael Porter is probably going to get the max this offseason as well. They can't really afford to keep Will Barton at, you know, the $15, $16 million range that he's in right now. I'm not sure who the team is that would pay him that much because so many of the rebuilding teams, like San Antonio, has all the cap flexibility in the world, but they have a million guards. So I don't think that they're really a Will Barton destination. Oklahoma City, they're trying to lose, so I don't think they're going to sign Will Barton. I don't know who the team is, but I think if you got him on the right team, I don't think it would be crazy for him to be like, the third or fourth legitimate third or fourth scorer on a really good team. I mean, he probably is that right now in Denver. He's a better defender than he gets credit for. He's got that microwave element where like you catch him on the wrong night. And you think this guy's not a starter. You catch him on the right night and it's like, wow, when did Denver get another all-star? So I'm a little unsure of where the team would be. And like you said, he's 30. So I don't know that there's the upside that there was with Jeremy Grant, but looking at like most of these teams that are going to make real playoff runs, they have pretty defined pecking orders, so there isn't as much opportunity for somebody to jump up. I think Barton is the guy who, just based on his team situation, is the one who like stands to gain the most, especially because Denver probably going to be the four seed, which means they're going to play Denver or they're going to play Dallas in the first round in all likelihood. Mavericks are beatable, right? It's not like they got the Lakers in the first round. So Denver might stick around for a while, and when that happens, somebody tends to get paid as a result. That's a good point. Uh, Barton, career playoff average, 8.2 points, uh, 38% field goals, 32 from three. So Yeah, he didn't play well, or he didn't play at all in the playoffs last year. Didn't play well in the year before that when, you know, Jokic and Murray were really carrying the show. So, yeah, he's not like a proven playoff performer, but Jeremy Grant wasn't either. And then he had, you know, three great weeks, and now he's a $60 million man. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna have to do some, but he's definitely capable, of, and he's uh he's a Baltimore guy, so I, I root for him. Who else? So is on we'll your go list? a little younger with this next guy in that tier, 
I don't want to say tier because these aren't these guys aren't really ranked. The next guy in that category, Norman Powell, who right now is simultaneously the third best player and the third best guard on his own team. Portland is probably going to lose in the first round because let's be honest, they're not very good. But Powell is the sort of guy who has just so much game to game upside with his shooting that they might lose a five game series where he averages like 25 points a game. I think some team is really going to overpay for that. I don't know who it is. I think the Knicks are likelier for Powell given their need for scoring. He's a little small and he's inconsistent on defense. So I don't know if that's really Thibodeau's style, but I think Powell, somebody who was going to get paid anyway, based on his great year. If he really outshines somebody like CJ McCollum in the playoffs, like if he gets hot and looks like the second best blazer, I think he's going to be in for a lot of money and maybe from Portland. Like, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Powell unseats McCollum next year. And like, they re-signed Powell with the idea that maybe McCollum is the guy that we're going to move. That's really interesting. And I, don't, I was going to say Portland fans would be really upset, but is that true? Or, or are they committed to Lillard McCollum? Or are they at the point where they're like, yeah, let's trade this guy. We need to, we need to do well, something to win with We Dane. know that they're going to fire Terry Stotts, right? Like clearly they're open to the idea that like maybe something needs to change here. I don't think there's somebody you can bring in who's better than Terry Stotts and can fix the defense given the size limitations that backcourt has. Like, I think if you're going to shake it up, I mean, obviously, frankly, if we're being honest, Portland in their current iteration is probably never winning a championship. If I were them, I would be trying to trade Lillard and McCollum and start over, but we know they're not going to do that. So if you're looking for like some sort of more realistic shakeup, re-sign Powell, make him your two guard, and then trade McCollum for whatever you can in the way of like, Maybe you get an upgrade at center. Like maybe you trade McCollum and Nurkic for something really good. Maybe you try to trade for a wing. I, I don't know what it is, but you could get something pretty good from a contender. Like, I mean, we've seen this trade thrown around a lot over the years, like a McCollum for Chris Middleton base. I think Chris Middleton makes a lot more sense alongside Powell and Lillard than, say, McCollum does. So, I mean, this isn't a CJ McCollum fake trade podcast, but I think Norm Powell is kind of fighting for a job in Portland where, like, they might just keep all three guards because inertia is powerful and Portland tend not to be like particularly aggressive with roster moves. They might just say, Oh, he's our guy. We traded for him. We want to keep him and we're going to be a seven seed again next year. But I think there is a chance that he's fighting to prove that he should be the long-term shooting guard there. Yeah. And, and if you're talking about like a potential kind of breakout playoff performance, he did play well in the playoffs last year. He shot uh 40 something percent from three. Um, I think he's a guy that in a playoff setting is not going to stop shooting. And I think there's something to that. He has the, the, well, whether it's rational or irrational confidence to shoot all the time. So um, if he gets hot and, and he, I could see him like kind of taking over for like a stretch in like the early fourth or something like that, where, you know, kind of like opens people's eyes be like, Hey, if we get this guy on a consistent playoff team, like he could be our guy or even Portland to say that. And in, in terms of replacing McCollum. So I could definitely see that from Powell. Yeah, my only, like, real long-term question with Powell is, is he big enough? Like, he succeeded in Toronto's defense, but Toronto's defensive infrastructure is so, so strong that, okay, you have one guy who's a little small, like, you can work around that. Kyle and Van Vliet can both defend above their position. Like, I wonder what he is defensively on a normal team, because Portland isn't a normal team either, right? Like, Portland has one of the worst defenses in basketball. That's not a fair situation to evaluate him either. I think on a more normal team, he's probably like a slightly below average defender. Does that seem right? Yeah, and it's, uh, 
You know, this is a really interesting topic. And I was talking with uh, my brother, my, <laughs> my brother, my friend's brother who works for the Rays, who, you know, I went to an Angels game. I got a chance to talk to him. And he was talking about Albert Pujols. This was, you know, like two days before he ended up getting released. But he was saying that that Pujols at this stage in his career is such a bad fielder and such a poor base runner because he's so slow that he has to essentially hit, you know, X number of home runs. Say it's like 35 to make him valuable. So when we, I think when we evaluate guys like Powell and their defense, it's like, OK, even if he's a, a minus on defense, like what does he have to bring offensively in order to offset that? So like he shot, you know, he's shooting 44 percent from three for Toronto, but he's shooting 35 percent for Portland. So like, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there. He's been a 40 percent shooter. So it's like if he's shooting 40 percent from three, I think you can you know, he can get away with being a little bit more lax defensively. But uh, if he's not but- doing that. Yeah, go ahead. Salary is the other variable here, right? Where, like, if he is a 38% three-point shooter and a below-average defender, that's okay at $12 million. It's not okay at $20 million, right? Like, exactly, right. Yeah. It's hard to know without knowing what his salary is, where that level of shooting needs to be. But, like, also, we hear at the deadline that, like, what was it? Like, over a dozen teams are interested in Norman Powell. Like, he was the team, he was the guy that every team wanted. So, clearly, there's going to be a market for him. And, like, He's young enough that he could go pretty much like anywhere. There's no real like ceiling. Like Oklahoma City might sign Norm Powell. I don't know. I don't think they will, but I think it's a possibility, whereas it's not for Barton. So like just given the market for him, like he almost has to get twenty million a year, right? Like just based on supply and demand. Yeah, and well, I mean, talking about supply and demand, it's like it's clearly like a guards league or a wings league now, right? Um, so everybody wants those guys, but it's also like there's a lot of them now. So, so it's I guess it's going to be interesting to see how those salaries kind of you know adjust themselves over the next few years when all these guys are are making three pointers at a pretty high percentage and are you know six six and long is a is a six three small forward going to make the same kind of money you know that he would a couple years ago so i also want to just point out generally about this group we probably shouldn't know who these guys are going to be because we didn't know with jeremy grant right like when jeremy grant signed with the pistons we all thought it was a terrible idea oh he can't be the leading scorer for a team like oh he's just a product of Jokic, yada 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 well no he turned out to be a lot better than we thought i think what really is going to happen like for the Jeremy Grant category is it's going to be somebody that we're not thinking of who like out of nowhere gets 16 million a year. We're just like, well, really this guy, I thought he was a role player. Like I think moves like Jeremy Grant really empower GMs to be like, I can take a shot on a guy that I like. And I don't know who that's going to be. Like these are the obvious candidates, but man, I'm really uncertain. Getting ready for the uh, Derek Jones Jr. $25 million contract next year. Believe it or not, I was actually on board with Derek Jones for the mid-level. I just think he's being used wrong. Like, I think the real way to use Derek Jones is put him at center, switch everything, and run a billion pick and rolls. Yeah, but they got Canner. They're never going to do that. Um, they, well, yeah, they're exactly. You need those 14 to 16 Canner minutes every night. I mean, look, we could do a whole podcast on just the conservative way Portland runs its organization, but I, I just I have too much to say on that. Let's move on to another team that I have quite a bit to say about. These are 2018 draft picks of the Phoenix Suns. So I'm just going to ask you point blank to start here. Let's say you could sign either of these guys up to the max. Who do you want to pay more? DeAndre Ayton or Mikhail Bridges? Mikhail Bridges. Mikhail Bridges is the answer, right? Like, it's super obvious, right? 
I feel like it's like a trick question and it kind of, I guess it kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier with supply and demand. Like is, is Aiton going to be a, like relative to other centers? Is he going to be more valuable than Bridges is relative to other wings? You yeah. Might be the answer is absolutely not. But <laughs> okay. I'm just thinking about, yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about optics here. DeAndre Aiton was the number one pick. Most of the time when the number one pick just comes up for an extension, Here's the max. Like, that's how it tends to go. Obviously, they're outliers like Markel Fultz. But, like, guess what? On the first day of free agency, Luka Doncic from that same draft is going to get the max. I was going to say, Young they could have solved these draft. problems. Could have solved right. these problems by taking Luka Doncic first overall. Trey Young going to get the max, right? Like, it's a little weird for – I'm sure Aiton, as the number one overall pick, is going to go to Phoenix and say, like, well, I'm putting up whatever it is, like 17 and 10. Yeah, I deserve the max. 63% from the field. Right. Well, the problem is Mikhail Bridges is a better player and Mikhail Bridges is not going to get the max. So I, I'm kind of wondering now on a number of levels, when the Suns played the Lakers on Sunday, Anthony Davis played DeAndre Ayton off the floor, right? Like, he, he, frankly, he humiliated him. Like, that's just what happens when the best big man in the NBA plays against the I don't know. I don't want to say underwhelming because DeAndre Ayton is pretty good. But like 22 year old center trying to play defense against Anthony Davis. It's not going to go well. And if they play the Lakers in the first round, if the Suns lose in the first round to a team, especially like the Lakers, that just matches up so well with them and Aiton isn't very good, like, what happens? He loses all of his leverage, right? Like, the Suns aren't maxing that on day one if, if they lose in the first round. Bridges is more valuable, but, like, I almost worry if you give Bridges more than Aiton, is that going to create an uncomfortable dynamic in that locker room? Because Aiton's the hometown kid. Aiton is the one who you're saying, oh, we're building our version of Kobe and Jack with Booker and Aiton. Like, I'd be a little worried about that. Is this one of the, yeah, I mean, is this one of those things where, like, you know how sometimes teams do this where they're like, if we don't do this, it's going to send a bad message to agents and the other players who are looking to sign? Like, is it one of those things where, like, if we don't, like, it's almost the, the, the cost of not doing it is almost worse than the cost of doing it? But what the cost of doing it is when you already have Booker on the max and Paul is or Chris Paul is like 36, 35, like you're basically committing to this as your core for the next several years. That, that I don't know. I'm not super comfortable with that. So let me ask you this. What needs to happen for Phoenix this postseason for you to feel comfortable maxing DeAndre? Ayton? I guess uh, it, defensively, it would probably be important. Um I don't know. It's just, I don't know where. I'm having the same issue when I look through the draft, like, at prospects. I'm just like, okay, like, he's a young, good center. Like, what, what is that in the league now? You know, like, what, how valuable is that in the league now? And I feel like if you're not a stout defender, like, a, a really good defender, it's, it's going to be hard for you to be, like, a max guy in today's well, NBA. It's not even just being a stout defender. It's being the right kind of stout defender, right? right exactly. This with Rudy Gobert, I was one of many people who criticized the Jazz for giving him either the Supermax or close to it. can't remember the exact number because drop coverage tends not to work as well in the playoffs as it does in the regular season, right? Like when you get to the playoffs, you want a guy like Anthony Davis who can guard on the perimeter who has great feet and can like really just move around a lot. Aiton is not bad at that, I guess. Like, He's not Yusuf Nurkic. Well, I don't want to say new Yusuf Nurkic because he was better this younger when he was younger. He's not Ennis Cantor, right? Like Aiton is more athletic than that. But 
is he ever going to be Anthony Davis? No. And is he a 25 point a game center? Like, is he a real difference maker on offense? I would argue probably not. So let me change the question again. What needs to happen for you to max out Mikhail Bridges this postseason? Nothing. You think it's just right do the exact do the exact same thing. So my thought is like, imagine they do play the Lakers in the first round, and like, well, no, it can't be the Lakers actually because LeBron would just blame it on his ankle. Imagine they play the Clippers in the second round, and he holds Kawhi to like 22 points a game on like 40 percent shooting, and now you're thinking like, oh, this is like a perennial all defense guy who shoots really well, has more of a floor game than he gets credit for. And is probably only going to blossom as he ages. And the Suns realize that Aiton maybe doesn't deserve quite as much opportunity as he gets. Like, he'll probably be the number two guy on the Suns in two years. Something like that. Like, I don't think he's going to get the max right now. But I think if he has, like, he's one really kick-ass series away from probably getting kind of close. Where, like, I've seen people throw around $100 million for Mikael Bridges. It's higher than that, man. Like, I think Mikhail Bridges is such a rare player that I think he's going to at least approach like 30 million. Didn't the 76ers have him? The 76ers had a lot of guys, and I had this argument on Twitter recently. Here's how you know that the process worked. Look at all of the just horrendously crazy decisions that they made and looked at they're still at the top of the standings. Like, how many contenders could have survived Jimmy Butler for Josh Richardson? Mikhail Bridges for Zaire, um, for Zaire Smith. And what was the other really bad trade? Oh, Jason Tatum for Mark Holtz. How many contenders could have survived all three of those moves? They knew what they were doing the whole time, man. This was the plan. It was all to get to this point <laughs> where there's basically an all-NBA team comprised of players that they let go. So hey, Them and the Lakers are in the same Philly, boat, man. right? Well, okay. the Lakers Julius guys— Julius Randle, like, Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball. Do that. But, but they already won a title, Lakers, so— it was defensible, though, because they had to give away all those guys to get Anthony Davis. The Julius Randle thing, like, people want to assume that he would have bloomed with the Lakers. He really wouldn't have. It didn't really make sense with the way that that roster was built the first LeBron year. And, like, what would he have been last year, right? Like, if he's doing his thing where he's turning the ball over seven times a game and he's getting way too obsessed with his spin move, that wouldn't have been valuable on last year's Lakers anyway. Like, they would have gotten rid of him anyway. So, I know. But my, my point overall with Aiton and Bridges is that I don't feel like I know what they're going to get. I think basic, you know, common NBA logic dictates that even if Bridges is better and we'd all rather have Bridges on our team, Aiton being the number one pick, the guy that the franchise is quote unquote building around, is probably going to get him more money. But I also think there are scenarios for, well, Bridges is pretty locked in. I think there's so much variance for where Aiton could be to where, like, if they make a real run and they're in the Western Conference Finals or the Finals, Boom, max, first day, done. If they lose in the first round, like, this might drag out, and he might be a restricted free agent next summer. So I'm really, like, I'm, I'm confused about this whole Phoenix situation. But I think we do agree Bridges is the guy that we want to keep. We're going from the top of the pay structure here to the bottom. Ooh. Let's talk about Clippers minimum guys. Because okay. two guys that have really outperformed their salaries this year, Reggie Jackson, who, I'll be honest, I thought he was done. And Nick Batum, who everybody thought was done. <laughs> Both of them have been, like, you know, pretty solid NBA players. They might have to do that in specific circumstances. Maybe they have to stay with the Clippers to be this good. But, like, th- that screams old guy that somebody overpays, right? It does, and especially because Reggie, ja- <laughs> Reggie Jackson is shooting 43% from the three-point line. I did not know that. 
I'll take unsustainable numbers for 400. I mean, come on. Yeah, so this is a problem with Jackson. It's like, so I guess for the topic of this podcast, like who can play themselves into more money? Yes, 100%. uh, Definitely a candidate where he has a couple good playoff series, um, especially, you know, Patrick Beverly's a little banged up. He might get some extra playing time. um, And suddenly someone's like, oh, yeah, Reggie Jackson. He's only 30. He's still got something left in the tank. He's only 30? In that's, my head, I that's think a basketball like reference is telling me. 31. Are you sure you're not looking like, is there a third Reggie Jackson? Like maybe you're looking at the baseball players? Am I like, looking at, I he just turned 31, so. <sighs> Man, in my head, I think of him as like decrepit. Yeah. I mean, he looked that, decrepit you know, last year. Yeah, so that was like, the, I think, was it game seven? One of the Nuggets collapses where like, they were like, everyone knew what was happening. They were just blowing it again. And then like, Doc Rivers put in Reggie Jackson, and I was like, okay, that's it. It's over. Just pack it up. We're the opposite home. of the human victory cigar, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yeah. well, he's so desperate, he's putting in Reggie Jackson. So I don't have a lot of faith that Reggie Jackson is going to have a strong postseason, but uh, in terms of what we're talking about, if he does somehow manage to play well like he has this year, um, he's going to get paid, I think. Well, what is the Clippers' guard rotation? Like, when they have everybody... Because Beverly probably needs to play in the highest leverage series because he's such a good defender. Rondo they need for ball movement. Terrence Mann, I think, has to play because he's one of the only guys who can get to the basket. So, like, I'm really confused about what, how much playing time Reggie Jackson's going to get. He's been starting for them, and I think there's a good chance that he ends up starting in the playoffs. He's been good. Like, I, I don't want to take anything away from him, but I also just think, like, when you look at what the Clippers actually need in the playoffs, like, Aside from your traditional, we need three and D role players. They need a more traditional point guard, which is what Rondo is, and they need somebody who can like really, you know, stro- um, stress the defense at the rim, which is what Man does, right? They need Man's athleticism. They need it in transition too. So I'm just, I feel like it's the he, Reggie is the easiest guy to take out of that rotation. So that's sort of what gets me here because based on his regular season, I do think he deserves more than the minimum. I don't know how much more. But Nick Batum is so much easier to fit onto a team that I do feel like somebody's going to come out with him, like, I don't know, the, at least the taxpayer mid-level, if not higher than that. I don't know you, if that's a good you idea. Think, you think he'll get that? The taxpayer mid-level, I think. Like, let's say you're the Warriors and you want to sign another 3 and D wing. Wouldn't Nick Batum be kind of perfect for you? Steve Kerr would love Nick Batum. He, I'll tell you that he much. Is the prototypical Steve Kerr. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. I, 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 again, uh, this is a very good choice for this category, so props to you. But um, he's a guy where, like, he needs to be on that national stage and, and be like, oh, look at all the little things he does. Like, you know, the hit-ahead passes and, you know, and the switchable defense and all this stuff. Like, those are things that, like, at least for the main, you know, general NBA public, you probably haven't been paying too much attention uh, watching Clippers games at, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning on East Coast time. Um he, he's a guy that does all these little things, and he's shooting forty percent from three this year, which is may or may not be sustainable. How old do you think Nick Batum is? Well, I'm looking at it. It's, I cheated, oh. but I based if I if you had asked me last year when I was watching him in Charlotte on the very few occasions that he like played sustainable minutes, I would have said, oh, he must have gotten to the NBA at like 29, and now he's 40. Oh, he's 32. <laughs> like. He was legitimately like a bottom 10 player in the NBA last year. He's been like a starting caliber guy for a real winner this year. I think somebody is going to give him like two years taxpayer MLE. 
it might be the Clippers, honestly. Like, I don't know. We'll see what they do this offseason. But he still has a lot of function. I think he's going to be playing pretty deep into the playoffs. And like we said, there's the supply and demand thing, right? Like, okay, if you're not giving him the taxpayer MLE, like, what free agent wing are you getting for that much? Right. And he's going to, you know, hopefully he's going to do okay in the playoffs this year. So we'll get that kind of like veteran playoff performer tag. And that, that goes a long way when you're looking to fill those kind of mid-level roster spots. I also think like there is a good chance that he's going to spend decent minutes defending LeBron James. And that should be a category onto itself this postseason. Because if LeBron's ankle is hurt, then some guys are going to look better defensively than maybe they should. Like if Phoenix gets the Lakers, like, and LeBron scores, I don't know, like 39 total points in the first two games. People are going to be crowning Mikhail Bridges for that, no matter how healthy LeBron yeah. is. Now, we're going to hear stuff after the playoffs, absolutely. Like, oh, LeBron couldn't walk. Oh, he was so heroic for playing. He's going to come out in a cast for game seven. Ugh. No, a cast is too much. It's going to be a walking boot. Like, in fact, no, no, can hard, I make a prediction on cast. this podcast right now? We Let's are going it. to see LeBron in a walking boot at some point between now and the playoffs. I don't know when it's going to be. It might be warm-ups before one of these regular season games. It might be a press conference. I don't know. I guarantee you we are seeing that walking boot. I bet it's after they lose. That's going to that's be my guess. It'll be. Right. <laughs> now, like, I, I, I do believe that LeBron broke his hand in the 2018 or 2019 finals, which was 18 finals. Yeah, 18. I do believe that because I watched him play game one where he basically looked like, I don't know, like some sort of divine being from another dimension. And then I watched game two, three, and four where he kind of looked mortal. So I do buy into that. Like, I'm not saying that he's faking anything. LeBron is just, he, he likes to ham it up a little bit. He likes to, you know, let's just say, like, make his conditions known. So He did not need to wear that cast in the post-game press conference. No, I let's don't put think it that did. way. It would, well, no no extra damage was being right. done to his hand while he was fielding questions from Mark Schwartz. Right. So I, I do think there's a potential bump there for, like, if Batum defends him for 10 bench minutes a game, somebody's going to look at me like, oh, he's somebody we can throw at LeBron. But maybe you, you probably shouldn't. I, I don't think that's a great <laughs> idea. But I think he's going to look better at it than he otherwise might have. Plus, like, I, I don't want to make a definitive prediction here. I'm leaning the Clippers as my championship pick right now. Whoa. And there's a sheen that comes with, like, role players on a champion. So I think that could give him a little bit of a bump as well. Clip, Who are you picking as a we'll champion? Like, what's your championship pick right now? Go uh, under your head right now, who's your Brooklyn. And you can change it. You're picking Brooklyn. Okay. Like, oh, that's it's boring, but it just, you know, I'm not sold enough on any other teams to not pick them, I guess. So are you based, let me ask you this then. What percentage chance do you give Brooklyn to win the title? Oh, come on. I don't know. Well, is it below, is it above 50% <laughs> or below? No, below, below. Right. That's what I'm getting at. You're not picking the Nets because you think there's some unstoppable juggernaut. You're picking them because they're the best of a frankly underwhelming group, which is kind of where I'm at with the Clippers. I don't know how. I mean, it's not, I don't know if it's underwhelming. I think it's just confusing. I just think we just didn't get a chance to see enough this year because of all the injuries and COVID and all that and the weird schedule. So it's just harder to pick this year. Well, I think the issue is at full. Let's assume everybody's healthy. I think the Clippers match up really well with the Nets. I think the Clippers match up badly with the Lakers. And I think the Nets, I don't know about the Nets-Lakers matchup. That's kind of a cluster in a number of different ways. But, like, I feel like if the Clippers were in the East, I'd feel better about them knocking out the Nets. I'm not as sure they're going to get the chance if the Lakers are healthy. But I don't know that the Lakers are going to be healthy. So it's hard for me to say. Do you want to go on to, A, a Nets guy and be a Lakers guy since we're already there? Yes, I love it. This is the, I don't want to say all defense because 
You know, their coaches are campaigning for these guys to get all defensive. Now, they're not going to get them, but this is the defensive-oriented guard category. Alex <laughs> very, Caruso very and Bruce specific. Brown. Well, that's kind of what they are. Like, the question for Alex Caruso and Bruce Brown is how will you function offensively in a playoff setting? We have some evidence with Caruso because he did win the title last year, but not really because, let's be honest, the Lakers didn't have the toughest path. They didn't have anybody who could really punish them for having Caruso on the floor. But this year, Caruso is shooting like 40% from three. With LeBron out, he was running a lot more pick and roll, and he's really grown in that regard. Like, this is not Matthew Dellavedova. Alex Caruso is like a very good NBA player. It's just a matter of, is he an $8 million a year player or is he a $13 million a year player? I think if he comes into the playoffs and is the offensive player that he mostly has been, that's like a seven, $8 million a year player. Who's just a very good defender and does some good things for you on offense. Good in transition, good connective passer, but not really good shooter. Not really an initiator. If he does those things in the playoffs too, now you're talking about like surefire eight figures annually. Bruce Brown is totally without precedent because he has this weird role where he's shooting guard sized, but he basically plays center on offense. We have no idea how that's going to look in the playoffs when teams can scheme around that and say, oh, we've seen this for two games. We know how to stop it now. If Bruce Brown is a total zero on offense, that's a problem because I think he's slightly overrated defensively. But if he's decent, like if he can stay on the floor on offense, with his defense, he's going to get a really nice salary next year. I got a couple thoughts. First of all, if Alex Caruso gets $13 million a year, is Twitter is Twitter just not, not exist anymore because it just blows up? It's just an atomic well, bomb on Twitter? What do you think Matthew Delvadova got when he left the when he left the Cavs? I, I took Matthew Delvadova in Daily Fantasy this year uh, because Colin Sexton and Darius Garland were both out, so he got to start. And I'm watching the game, and he lines up and fires a brick three-pointer. And the uh, the announcer goes, Delavadova came into the game shooting 12% from three this year. Can I tell you my favorite Matthew Delavadovaism? If you watched him during the 2015 or the 2015-16 season, especially, but a little bit with the Bucks too, he sagged off of guys to like a psychologically damaging degree, and I think it really was like. He was trying to get in guys' heads as if, like, I guarded Stephen Curry and you, sir, are no Stephen Curry. So there would be games where he would be guarding, like, a league average shooter at point guard. But, like, the guy would be behind the arc and he would be in the paint. It was one of the weirdest things I'd ever seen. That's but awesome. I think it got in guys' heads because, like, he did it really frequently. That's like the pick, working, apparently. the pickup game where you're just like your guy shoots and you before he even lets go of the ball, you just start running down court, just turn around like that's it. Uh, we that's the shot we wanted. Matthew Delavadova is a master of psychological mind games. Um, his contract was 38 million over four years, so almost 10 million a year. I get that 2016 was like a special circumstance. Alex Caruso is a significantly better player than Matthew Delavadova was in pretty How dare much. You? Hard except for consistency as a shooter like his shooting is still pretty new so i would understand why people would be gun shy the other thing about it is the lakers are in a position where anybody they lose they can't replace so they're obviously going to be luxury tax concerns for them but caruso is like one of these guys that they probably want to be a lifelong laker like they probably want him to be something like this generation's Derek fisher like a role player on a lot of different winning laker teams i think there's a championship tax that comes with him too I don't know. Like, I think he is setting himself up to be overpaid by the Lakers in particular. 
But I also sort of thought that with KCP last year, and he got a pretty reasonable contract. Kyle Kuzma got a pretty reasonable contract. So maybe the Lakers do hold firm. I'm not sure. But my point is, if Alex Caruso really is a 40% three-point shooter, given his defense, like, I'm sorry, that's an eight-figure-a-year 3-and-D player at the bare minimum. When you throw in the passing, when you throw in the transition stuff, you throw in just the high IQ effort plays, like, that's worth a lot of money. Sam Quinn recently signed on as Alex Caruso's agent. I think we should d- disclose that recently? to everybody. Oh, no, my friend. I've been doing this well, for quite a while. It became official. You put pen to paper. I have been boosting Alex Caruso since I was working at 24-7 Sports. I was covering the Lakers my first year. And this was, I think at this point, the Lakers had basically been eliminated from playoff contention. They were playing Denver. It was a Friday night. And I did like a game slideshow after every game. And one of our editors now, Michael Bolin, who was my boss at the time, he's one of our editors now, I wrote this thing about Alex Caruso, and it got, like, no page views because, of course, it didn't. It was just a random, meaningless game against Denver where Alex Caruso looked really good, did no traffic. And, yet I kept writing about Alex Caruso, and all I could think was, our boss is probably not happy about me writing this about Alex Caruso, but he was so good, and they kept winning his minutes and losing the Rondo minutes that, like, it was driving me crazy. That's when I fell in love with Caruso, and that's when Lakers fans like, as a whole really fell in love with him. So this is not a new thing, my friend. I've been on the Caruso train for quite some time. How, how things have changed that a story back then about Alex Caruso could do no traffic, and now we oh, write right? that yeah. Alex Caruso declined a dunk contest invitation. It's the highest performing story of the month. So I actually I talked to him about that in a locker room, and like he wouldn't give me a good quote, but my sense was he, he answered this so many times that he just didn't want to go through it again. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with Caruso. If, if, if teams believe the 40% is real and he can do that in the playoffs, even though it's on limited attempts, he's like two a game, which, you know, that would have to be like four or five for me to like really trust it. But uh, if teams think he's going to be able to, to shoot that way, that changes the kind of, you know, his ceiling as a player. Whereas Bruce Brown, I don't think, you know, I, I love Bruce Brown, but I don't think anybody's going to think he's going to be a three-point shooter anytime soon. So that no. really really lowers his uh, salary, in my opinion. Well, the question for Bruce Brown is, does his offensive role as this, like, offensive rebounder, great cutter, pick-and-roll finisher kind of guy, like, is that feasible in the playoffs? Because we've never seen this out of a guard. Maybe a little bit peak Andre Robertson. Even that, he he wasn't running pick-and-roll quite to this degree. So I, I think the other issue for him is that even if the role does work having it work in Brooklyn and having it work in you know I don't know just throwing out a team like San Antonio those are two very different things right like he gets to do this weird highly specific role because the Nets have so much firepower that like sure they can afford to use a lineup spot that way other teams might not be able to do that yeah I agree and I you know again I said I love Bruce Brown but I don't I don't see it. Like, what what do you think he would have to do this playoffs to really, like, be like, oh, man, that's a guy we need to sign? Well, what do you think he's worth right now? Like, if he if he didn't play a playoff game, but, like, he what, didn't have an injury issue, he just didn't play. I don't know. I think he'd get five or six million a year. Is that fair? Yeah, that sounds about right. I think with a good playoffs, you could be talking full mid-level exception. How much is that? It's going to be between nine and ten this offseason, I think. Oh, huh. I'm talking, like... <laughs> if he is a key player on the NBA champions, is that why is that so crazy? If he's like the seventh best player on the NBA champions, 
I guess it, I guess it's like you said, like if he's not on the Nets, what is he? You know, like. Although I, I will know. say this, he shot 39% from the corner last year in Detroit, so maybe there is some hope for him, even if only as like a PJ Tucker corner exclusive shooter. So I don't know. That that really depends on how how confident you are in your shooting coaches, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. Uh, as crazier things have happened, I'm not gonna say it's not possible, but. Well, the other, I wanted one last thing about Alex Crusoe. Most inconsistent finisher in the end. Well, not the most in the NBA, but like <laughs> that's been a real problem for him this year where there are games where like he'll just boink two out of his three layups. And then there are games where like he's obviously dunking on dudes. That's something that I'm watching for with LeBron and AD back. Like if he has a little bit more space at the rim, is he a more consistent finisher? So that's just, I don't know. The shooting is the main thing with him. But finishing is something to watch as well. This last group is, I don't like putting them all together because their teams are in such different situations, but just the late first round pick shooters from 2018, Dante DiVincenzo, Kevin Herter, Grace Nallon, Landry Shamit. I have no idea what any of these guys are worth. Where do you want to start? Do any of those guys interest you? I love Kevin Herter. I have a He's the best non-shooter of Herter. Right? Like, I think he, he can do so much more than shooting. Yeah. Right. Um, he, he's like a legitimately good playmaker. The issue is, if you're on a team with Trey Young, Bogdan Bogdanovich, and Lou Williams, you don't get the chances to show that off. Something that I'm really interested in with him is, do they think of Bogdanovich as the long-term two? Because if they do, you're suddenly talking about Trey Young is going to make the max. Bogdanovich is making $18 million a year. You have all of these forwards. You know, you have Hunter, you have Reddish. You have, well, I guess Tony Snell is on expiring. He might not be back. But the point is, like, you have a lot of wings as is. Do they look to trade Kevin Herter this offseason? Like, does he have a fit there long term? Yeah, I think you got to look at it. I mean, it's just, I mean, we've talked about this with the Hawks all year long, and it, they haven't really run into the problem because they've had so many injuries. But they just got, they got a lot of guys. Like, they just have a lot of players. And, you know, I don't think Lou Williams is going to be there after this season. I don't know if you think differently, but that'll open up some more minutes for, for Herter. But, um that's definitely a guy who could you know eventually if he hits restricted free agency you know somebody could come in and and offer him a pretty large contract that they would have to match so it's not crazy to think that they would look to move him I don't know if he would draw more interest than you know a guy like Reddish who hasn't played a lot um obviously DeAndre Hunter was amazing and they're not doing anything with him but um I guess you'd have to kind of take the temperature of other teams as to whether they'd be willing to fork over more for Herder than Reddish. Because at this point, I think I'd rather have Herder, but maybe I'm crazy. So can I give you my Kevin Herder fake trade? Yeah, let's hear it. Kevin Herder for Kyle Kuzma. Why would the Lakers do that? Because they need shooting. Now, Kuzma is... Kuzma, he's just singing his praises all year. He changed his game. He's his offensive rebounder now. Listen, I love what Kyle Kuzma has done this year. He has been... Basically everything Lakers fans didn't expect him to be, right? Like the scoring is still very inconsistent and it might always be, but defensively he's improved so much as a rebounder. He's improved like exponentially. He's one of the best offensive rebounders in the NBA right now. Huge, huge jump in basketball IQ. He's also like, this is a weird thing. I, I don't want to call him a leader, but like when you look at the quotes in post game from him, like this is somebody who clearly takes pride in being a winning player and feels comfortable enough in his place in the organization to really talk about that, right? Like, he came out and he actually advocated for Marcus All to get more playing time. Like, young players don't do that very often. Like, that's meaningful to me. 
So this is somebody who like is really established as an NBA player, really fits in well with what the Lakers are doing. That being said, I'm sorry, the Lakers could really use somebody who shoots as well as Herder, or at least shoots as well as Herder can. Like he's been a really good shooter with the Hawks. Imagine what he'd be with LeBron and AD. So I don't know, something to consider. I get why you would hesitate. Listen, Kyle Kuzma should retire as the Laker right now, right? Like if this is who he is, he's the perfect fit with LeBron and AD, but they got to find shooting somehow. Yeah, I think they'll they'll get like Wayne Ellington or something like that and just call it a day. Well, yeah, you're probably right. But <laughs> back to Herder, though, I think this this postseason isn't going to settle this. But the fundamental question for him is, is he the starting shooting guard or is Bogdanovich? One of them is going to be a higher priority than the other. We'll see which one it ends up being. But I think the loser is the one who's likelier to be traded there. Herder is younger. Herter's probably going to be cheaper on his next contract unless he, you know, totally blows up in the playoffs, which I don't think he will. So I personally would rather keep Herter, but I don't know. Bogdanovich is really good too. I like them both. Yeah, he's been great, and and it kind of works both ways with your with our kind of premise here that you know it's not necessarily Herter playing himself into more money, but if if Bogdanovich has a terrible off se- or a postseason. That might change things for Herder or vice versa. If Bogdanovich goes crazy, maybe like, all right, this is our guy. Now we're gonna look to move Herder or whatever. So a lot I will of stuff say though, I do think he doesn't necessarily need to get a contract off of this postseason. Like if he if they don't agree to a contract this offseason, he'd be a very coveted restricted free agent in 2022. So I think he has a little bit more breathing room than some of these other guys. The guy I think has the most variance is Dante DiVincenzo. Because they tried to trade him for Bogdan Bogdanovich, right? Like, the Bucks clearly, I don't want to say don't view him as a long-term building block, but they're not married to keeping this guy. But if they win the championship and he shoots 42% along the way, now he's like, we're in the money, man. Like, now he can really argue for, like, $15 million a year, which is wild because he does not deserve that. But championships get you nice contracts. Yeah, I mean, I think... He seems to fit in like perfectly with them, so I I can see why they would want Bogdanovich. He's a little more dynamic and can do a lot more on the ball. Um, the is a better defender. He's pretty versatile defensively, so I think better rebounder than I thought. Just looking at these numbers. Yeah, he'll he'll mix it up in there. Like he's a I don't know he's he's that you know career high three point one assists this year per game. Um, I don't know. Part of that is probably a product of the Bucks offense. And again, you have to look at what does this guy look like in a different system uh, and how does that affect him? But again, the Jeremy Grant thing, not saying he's Jeremy Grant, but you put him in a different scenario with a little more responsibility, maybe he flourishes. So I could, I could see teams talking themselves into some Dante DiVincenzo. Here's the thing. We know that if they do, if the Bucks lose in the playoffs in similar fashion they have in recent years, even Genzo is the guy they're going to trade because he's all they have left to trade. They have no tradable first round picks left. They have no other young guys. So like he's kind of playing for his job here, right? Like I don't know that there's a guy with a wider range of outcomes than Devin Genzo. If the Bucks lose in the second round, I'm pretty sure he's going to get traded this off season. If they win the championship, he's going to be a very rich man. I also like, I hate to say this with, you know, say two guys who look as similar as they do. He and Pat Connaughton, there's a lot of overlap there. It's like the sneaky, athletic, decent shooter type for the Bucks. I don't think the Bucks would miss DiVincenzo that much if they had to trade him for an upgrade somewhere else. So he is kind of expendable, but 
these playoffs are really going to be the determinant for him, right? Like if they win the title, he's going to be a rich man. I keep saying that, but with guys on teams like the Bucks, it can kind of be that simple. I think he's much better than Pat Connaughton. He's better, but I'm saying there is a lot of similarity. Yeah. And also on basketball reference, one of his nicknames is the big ragu, which is pretty amazing. I've never heard that before. Neither have I. I, I, I mean, that's that's way. basketball reference, though. They just right. they put in nicknames that do not exist. Just for, Well, my just question for is, like, let's say hypothetically, I just start tweeting a few times. Like, I, I don't I don't want to brag, but, like, I've got a little bit of a following, whatever. I can bear it. All right, all right. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal. But, like, if let's say a few times I tweet about a guy and I, like, give him a nickname. How many times do I have to tweet about it to get it on basketball reference? It's probably already there. Like just the fact, the fact that you thought well, about it. It's it already crossed there. my mind. So I'm sure we've talked about this on this, on this podcast. One of my dream nicknames for somebody is popcorn. I'm just really surprised that no like small scoring guard has ever gotten that nickname. How hard would it be to like, can I tweet about this three times and just get it on basketball reference for somebody? Like I would love to get on basketball reference, like as a nicknamer, I guess. I mean, I don't think they like, list credits but i would like to get a nickname on basketball reference and it doesn't seem that hard you could be like one of the guys who they look to they're like all right we need some nicknames for this guy like let's just search search through his name on on that's what i gotta do undrafted free agents start tweeting nicknames for them yeah like just whoever the you know least notable guys are the guys who don't have nicknames yet but let's be real everybody has nicknames on basketball reference yeah, you got to like just somebody wait till somebody gets going and be like, oh, popcorn's got it going again. I was like, what? Who are you talking about? There we go. That's how a nickname is born. Well, hang on. <laughs> I'm looking this up. Armani Brooks does not have a nickname on basketball reference. So we could get on top of that. You mean Armani Popcorn Brooks? Is that who you're talking right, about? Right, exactly. Well, like, look, we've been hearing it on this podcast, right? Like, it's been it's been going around a little bit. So, yeah, I think we could make that happen. You know what, listeners, if any of you guys have connections to basketball reference, let's make this happen you know who'd be a good popcorn jordan Poole. oh he would be that's, that's a good, a good that's a good popcorn he has hair kind of looks like popcorn too it's a little bit i think it works on several levels because it can work for a guy who's really athletic because like oh he's you know popping he's jumping really high or it could work for like a microwave scorer because like oh he heats up quickly yeah he's heating up popcorn. this was I like I, this is my campaign for emmanuel quickly by the way because quickly is in the name he heats up quickly he does. That's got. That's a little low-hanging fruit. You got to work on that one. So, how much do you think Landry Shamit gets? Because, like, Ugh. man, I've got no idea. I've got no earthly idea. Ugh. He he's does just not like. Have... Go ahead. I was just gonna say he's just one of those guys who's either, like, when he's on, it's like, oh man, this guy's gonna be really good for a long time, and then like he'll disappear for like seven games where he does absolutely nothing. His playoff history is not great, and maybe he'll change that this year. Maybe he won't. He started this season in his first 16 games shooting 28% on threes, but since then, I believe he's over 40%. Like, this guy is just I, – I don't know, man. Like, he's very inconsistent, and he's one of these Kyle Korver types who I think once you get to the playoffs and you have teams, like, really devoting scouting resources, he becomes a lot worse because he just doesn't have that much more to his game, right? Like – Joe Harris can do enough off the dribble that I think he's going to be fine in the playoffs regardless. Shamit, not so much. He's obviously tiny on defense. I have no earthly idea what this dude is worth. Like, I'm just going to say it. I have no clue. But the playoffs are going to be a determinant for him, right? Like, if they win the title, and we did this with Bruce Brown too, like, 
they win the title, he's going to make a lot of money. I don't know how big a role he's going to have in the playoffs, though. Like, he's redundant with Joe Harris, right? Like, why are you paying Landry Shaman a lot of money if you're also playing Joe Harris 35 minutes in the playoffs when you could be devoting those minutes to Bruce Brown, maybe, like, or your other more defensive-oriented guys? I'm not even sure I'd give um, Shamit that many more minutes over Mike James, frankly, at this point. So yeah, I, there's I a agree. lot of variance there. I think Shamit's one of the one definitely a candidate to go like a lot of games with DMPs in the playoffs, and it's just for the, the reasons you mentioned. Hunted, like, right? like two yeah. of two of Harden, uh, Kyrie, and and Durant are going to be on the floor at all times. Like, do you really need Landry Shamit if you have, like you said, if you have Joe Harris or somebody else? Like, you got to use your resources valuably. And you mentioned that you compare, you know, Harris is bigger. He's 6'6". Six, six. You mentioned Kyle Korver. He's 6'7". Duncan Robinson, 6'8". Like, that's how these guys can stay on the floor is because they're, they're good defensively. Shamit is smaller and not he's as good of a defender. built like a scarecrow, right? <laughs> like, he has – I'm sorry. In the defense, he's going to get – in the playoffs, he's going to get hunted relentlessly on defense. That's just what's going to happen. Now, let's go down Brooklyn's rotation here, right? You have the three stars. Joe Harris is obviously the fourth guy. What are the bench minutes going to look like, or what are the other minutes going to look like? Bruce Brown is going to be heavily involved. The two bigs, Claxton and Blake, are going to be heavily involved. Jeff Green. Okay, now we've got, what, is that eight players, seven players? Like, I kind of think I'd rather have Mike James on the floor. Now, maybe Mike James's shot creation isn't as important when you have all three stars, but I don't know, man. Like, Mike James looks pretty good. Don't sleep on Tyler Johnson getting, like, like a sneaky ten minutes here and there, too. Okay, hypothetical. Let's say you're Steve Nash. And Spencer Dinwiddie says, I can play. What are you doing? Play him. You're playing him? Oh, yeah, 100%. Back to Jameer Nelson? Yeah, definitely. I mean, not in huge bursts, but, like, yes. <laughs> Is 70% of Spencer Dinwiddie for 10 minutes better than 100% of Mike James? Well, yeah, I mean, you see what it looks like, you know? Like, if you get him out there and it's like, oh, boy, like, he is not ready for playoff basketball. But uh, Dinwiddie strikes me as a guy who, you know, mentally would be down he'd be he'd be ready to go he's already pretty redundant on that roster like even before he got hurt like i don't how valuable is he really when you have harden and Kyrie? well he's a he's a bigger guard like you said like he's a, a but he's not really a shooter he can shoot <laughs> I, I just think him. in his physical condition he would get hunted on defense too I mean, like you said he wouldn't be a, a main component of your offense but i think if he's ready why not throw him out there see what it looks like the last guy on this list is Grayson Allen, but they're going to play two play-in games, so let's just leave it at this. I think the Grizzlies are probably going to re-sign him for like something pretty close to what the lower-end ex- rookie extensions tend to be, which is like $9, 10000000 million a year. Does that sound fair, or is that too much? Um, I would say it seems about right, but they have kind of a, a logjam there with Melton and Bain. So that would be my and only. And Dylan Brooks, who like I keep harping on this, has been like more consistent recently. Right. So that that would be my only concern with like if they would be willing to pay him that much. It's just like, well, if we let him go, we have some other guys who can just kind of fill in his minutes. So. But I know. think the 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 opposite of that is that this is Memphis, and you can't let the asset get away for free. Good point. So my thought is just like, if you have a bunch of guys that are worth between seven and ten million. Sign all of them and then try to trade two or three of them together. So, like, maybe you end up trading Grayson Allen, and I don't think the playoffs are going to affect his value that much unless, like, I don't know, like, let's say they play the Warriors in one of these playing games, 
and Steph makes six threes, but Allen also makes six threes. And we get this image in our head of like, oh, wow, this is a shooter's duel between Stephen Curry and Grayson Allen. That's just like the lasting image of Memphis Grizzlies playoff basketball from now on. Grayson Allen going toe-to-toe right. with Steph Curry. That time he went toe-to-toe with Stephen Curry. <laughs> like, I don't think that's likely, but he's a good enough shooter that like it might be an advantage for him that they're only going to play one or two playing games. Because if he's awesome in those one or two games, he suddenly looks a lot more attractive. I mean, I, I don't. I wouldn't put it past him. And like, you know, is a he played at a high level at Duke, and he's clearly not afraid of of people in the NBA. So, I don't know. I, I, that's why I love this playoffs, and I love conversations like this because it's like it's like you were talking about with the Jeremy Grant type. Like, you just you really never know like who it's gonna be, and that's why playoffs are so fun because you know the stars are always the stars, and it comes down to those guys. But there's always somebody, you know, Fred Van Vliet just coming out of nowhere or whatever it is. Oh, who's like, having a kid? Who's having a kid this posting? Whose wife is pregnant? Dude, you're a gambler. That is something you need to, like, scour. I would love that information. Now, you got, you got to be on Instagram. Whose wife has a little baby bump? Like, who's who's getting ready to deliver? Well, they always say, like, in football, that's actually, like, a pretty big thing where, like, people do keep track of that. But for the opposite reason, where you figure if somebody has a newborn baby, they're not sleeping as much. Like, I do know I've heard about that with football betting. I would love to start keeping track of this for basketball because I do think there's opportunity there. We're also going to have to do a Grizzlies podcast at some point because they have 14 like low-end starting level players, and I have no idea how to sort through that. So like Grayson Allen might be like their long-term two-guard, or he might be off the team in a year. It's crazy. They have so many guys, and they're all just like pretty good. (laughs) They got John Morant, Jared Jackson Jr., and then a bunch of guys that are like pretty good. I don't think any team has ever had a smaller disparity between their fourth best player and their 12th best player. Is that fair to say? Uh, are you saying that Jonas is their third best player? I'm saying, well, yeah. I'm, or well, Brooks. I'm to, probably Jonas, but I, I don't know where what to do with Jaron Jackson because he's missed all year. So, like, I guess this year Brooks has been the third best guy, but. He still is Dylan Brooks. Yeah. So, but your like your earlier in the season so, it was more yeah, whether it's like, fourth, fifth, whatever. I mean, there's just like how much better so many guys. I'm trying, who is the fourth best player on that team? Like after Dylan Slow Mo, Slow Mo get his name in there. He probably is, and I hate that he is because like I just don't enjoy watching him. But like, how much better is he than Xavier Tillman? Not much. Yeah, Tillman's really good. Bain's Xavier really Tillman, good. the twelfth best player. Brandon, Brandon Man, Clark is really good. That team. I don't know what to do with that team. They really they they need to consolidate, but I do think I don't know why we're going off on a Grizzlies tangent. Like it's not what we set out to do here. I think they could maybe get like a decent splash this off season if they decline the Winslow option. Because now you're talking about something like 20 million in cap space. I know Memphis is not super desirable, but you go there and you're like a high level starter. You might be able to get 30 minutes a game on an up and coming team. That's a pretty decent situation. Well, the Grizzlies are going to be in one of the play-in games, uh, probably two, um, maybe two. I don't really know how the play-in works. We'll figure it out. Um, they're probably, if they're nine, <laughs> they're favored over San Antonio, but then they lose to Golden State in the second one, right? Like, that's what we think. You mean to lose to the Lakers in the second one? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, I think that's the right place to close. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, uh, playoffs right around the corner. This is wild. I can't believe we made it. Uh, anything to add before we go? Yeah, playoffs really are right around the corner. We should probably be asleep. It's 2 a.m. for us right now. But, you know, we have such busy writing schedules that this is when we have to record. We have a meeting coming up pretty early in 
I don't know, what, eight hours? We should probably get to sleep. I think a little bit less, actually. Yeah, the East classic East Coast bias on, on these meeting times. I'm going to call out our, our CBS editorial staff for that. Well, I hate to say this. I've missed a couple of meetings for that exact purpose. I'm sorry. If you schedule a meeting for 10 a.m. Eastern, you cannot expect the West Coast writers to be on that call. I'm 100% on board with that. Sam Quinn, hey, uh, you know, listeners, go rate, subscribe, like. Uh, what else do you do with stuff? Download, you know, all the all the computer tech stuff. Uh, get let's get this podcast going. What do you think, Sam Quinn? Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we'll have to do this again soon. And uh, everybody, be on the lookout for these players that we talked about today. I think uh, at least some of them will, will uh, be making a big splash in the playoffs. Yeah, Colin, we can't have another three week absence, so I'm glad to have you back. Not during the playoffs, that's for sure. Oh, this is have- our this is our playoffs too. Yep. All right, take it easy, my man. <laughs>